looking in uh, your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 3, let me, um, let me do just one little caveat, one little explanation. I promise you that I did not plan for this passage on Valentine's Day from the start. I, this, this is purely... God's providence. This was not by design. This was not something I set up, you know, planning out series in 1 Peter and making sure we got to this on Valentine's Day. Uh, that would not, I probably would have tried to avoid it if I had been paying that much attention uh, to uh, the schedule. First uh, Peter chapter three verses one through seven. So it's our practice here at Grace Covenant to stand when we read God's word, which is why I let you sit during that song. Uh, so let's stand together uh, as we sing. I mean, as we read. First Peter chapter three. Hear God's word. Uh, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the, to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this your word. Uh, You inspired these very words from Peter's pen. Uh, You have preserved them, kept them uh, for us. And we pray that you would now be at work in them and through them uh, in our own hearts and lives uh, for the honor of Christ our Savior. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I can't imagine many more passages in the whole Bible more hated than this one, quite honestly. I mean, certainly certainly in the world outside, out there, you have to do the air quotes around out there. You know, and certainly in the world out there, this notion that, whoa, 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 hold on. Like this whole wives submitting to husbands thing is the whole reason the world out there, whatever those words mean, hate Christianity. I mean, see, see how backwoods they are? See how outdated they, they are? See how out of touch with modern times? See, Paul hated women. And so they just dismiss all of the Bible with things like, well, it's passages like this that just cause us to hate God's Word. And the reality is, many times inside the church, they, 
they may not be met with quite the same anger and frustration and hatred, but they're not, they're unsettling to say the least. They are difficult words to hear. And, and for that matter, we, they're probably some of the reasons we from time to time might even be embarrassed of God's word. And it would help, I think, to consider the fact that Peter's context, the, the setting to which he writes. I mean, by the way, never mind that he gives six verses to wives and one verse to men. I mean, talk about Peter being a chauvinist, right? I mean, six whole verses written to wives and one to men. Like, at least make it equal. If you're really not trying to communicate that men are better than women, at least make it three verses and three. At least balance it out somehow. But context matters. Because we know that God is a God of order. We know that God is a God of structure. In fact, the very first thing we see Him do in the whole Bible is take chaos and disorder and arrange it. He takes formless and void in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and makes them formed and filled. God is a God of order. And that's the context of Peter for that matter. Back in the middle of the last chapter, Peter started writing about proper order and structure. We as citizens obeying those in civil authority over us, slaves and masters. And now he turns his attention to the home. And he tells wives, be subject to your own husband. Submission isn't about quality or value. It's about order and structure. And I can prove it to you with one verse. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 you know. Well, most of Luke 2 you know. You know the beginning part where, you know, every Christmas you read Luke 2 and, and, and the birth narrative, the birth account of Christ. You know, you may not realize it's in Luke 2, but in Luke 2 you know the account of Jesus uh, in the temple at 12 years old and getting left by his parents. Made me feel real good about the time I left the boys playing basketball in the gym at the church in Oxford and got home and they weren't there already and they weren't in the car with me. That's okay. Joseph and Mary did it too. Um, uh, so I felt pretty good. And you might even know the last verse of Luke 2. 18 years of Jesus' life in one verse, he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and favor with men. But there's one verse. At the end of... This account of Jesus in the temple. Look at verse 51 of Luke chapter 2. And he, that's Jesus, went down with them, that's Joseph and Mary, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his father and his mother, I mean, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. The exact same word used to describe Jesus submitting to his parents is the word used in 1 Peter 3 of wives submitting to their husbands. Jesus, you know, 
the second person of the Trinity in the flesh, infinitely greater than his parents, was subject to his parents nonetheless. Why? It's not a value statement. It's an order and structure statement. Being subject, being submissive is, isn't about value or worth. It's about function and role and order. That order extended to governments back in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. It extended to slaves and masters. And now it extends to the family. Peter's writing in, in this setting, in this context, he's writing about proper order and structure and what that structure looks like in the home. And so we come to verse 1 in 1 Peter 3. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. I think it's important to note that Peter's not writing all women everywhere submit to all men everywhere. He's very precise and clear in his language. Wives, be subject to your own husband. It's order in the home. It's not order everywhere, at least not here in this setting. That's not the aim. He's talking about what does it look like to live the cross-shaped life within the family. But did you notice the rest of the verse? There's actually an evangelism angle to this. There's an evangelism aspect to this submission. We saw this actually back in verse 12 of chapter 2. That there, um, that our, our good deeds might be seen by those around us and draw them to saving faith in Christ. That they ultimately glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter writes, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that they might actually be one to Christ. There's an element of evangelism, of kingdom growth. See, the reality is that our, our conduct uh, as believers is supposed to give evidence to, give credence to our profession of faith. And at that point, you're kind of asking yourself, is that really the picture of the church today? Is it really the case that the conduct of believers around the globe actually brings honor and glory to Christ? Or maybe not so much. Is, is, is the conduct of believers grounds for unbelievers to go, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of that. And so the context has this evangelism angle to it. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. Now it... The implication here is that you're talking about a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. That doesn't mean that 
once he gets converted, then all bets are off and, and the submission thing whole, you know, goes away. That's a, another point for another context. Ephesians 5, Paul addresses that. See, remember, Peter's writing to a predominantly Gentile church in Asia, modern-day Turkey. He's writing to people who have come out of polytheism, who have come out of the, the common first-century Roman world where there's a whole pantheon of gods and you know, the emperor du jour gets added to that list. Whoever the Caesar is, whoever the emperor is at that time is also worshipped as a god. But this is a believing wife. She's had to leave that. She's now saying, well, there's only one true God. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of the Bible. It's, there's, there's just one. There's not, not many. There's not all of these gods that you... Claim, dear husband of mine. Their beliefs now are at odds with each other. What she believes and what he believes aren't the same. And they're actually diametrically opposed to each other. You know the temptation, right? I mean, you can think of a couple of reasons why, ladies, this would make you want to talk more. You've got this new love for Christ and you want to talk about Him. And your husband won't listen. You want Him badly to be there in eternity with you when I'll sing on, we just sang a few minutes ago. And so you, you keep talking, you keep speaking, you keep bringing Christ back up to Him. Your goal is not to nag. It's because you so love Jesus and you want Him there with you. You want your husband there with you in eternity. See, the, the understanding was that the husband's religion was the family religion. What the husband believed, the wife was supposed to embrace also. And now there's appears to be conflict between husband and wife. And Peter says, look, it's not so much the words which he's already rejected on multiple occasions. You've heard the gospel, he's heard the gospel, and, and he's rejected that gospel on a number of occasions. Saying it again and again isn't going to go as far as your life. The hope is that a submissive that by submissive conduct without a word, the unbelieving husband would be one to Christ. Sure, you can remind him over and over again of his need for Jesus. He's heard that. He knows that. And so Peter says, let your conduct reflect that profession of faith. And that conduct will draw his attention to Jesus even more so 
than your words. Have you ever noticed how the things that drew you to someone initially this isn't just a marriage relationship. This is just true, right? This is true in friendships. This is true in every sort of relationship. There's, there's something about someone that catches your attention and, and you're drawn to them. And it's their looks. It's their attitude. It's their hair. It's their clothes. It's the way they dress. It's the grades they get in school. It's any number of things. But have you ever noticed that the closer you get to people, those things become less and less important? Like, even, I mean, again, just friends. I mean, just the hairstyle doesn't matter when you're good friends. It's just, it's not the thing that makes you good friends. It might have been the thing that drew you at some point or another, but it's not the thing that matters ultimately in the long run. That, that external thing that caught your eye to begin with, the longer you know that person, the less you notice that anymore, the less... You even pay attention the less it matters. And the reason for that is there are so many other things that sort of bubble up to the surface. You say, well, this caught my attention, but what I really like now is actually these other things I didn't know existed at the time. These other, this personality, this, this humor, this whatever the case may be. Well, the Bible actually wants those things to stand out from the beginning. Not only is a wife's conduct supposed to draw her husband's attention to Jesus, but so is her dress, verses 3 through 5. And again, the world around us goes, see, look, the Bible, you can't even braid your hair. You can't wear earrings. Besides, look at all these Christian women violating the Bible, wearing earrings. You got gold rings on your fingers. Your, your ears are pierced. What this seems like a waste. And it becomes a dismiss, a, a dismissal, a reason to dismiss God's word. But Peter's not, dis, not discounting braiding hair and wearing gold jewelry in every sort of manner. He's recognizing the fact that how we dress actually says something. That's why long-haired hippie was a statement, was a thing in the 60s. It was a statement maker. And Peter goes, that's, that's just the nature of the world in which we live. It was true in his day, in first century Rome. It wasn't just that women braided their hair, it's that they literally could spend hours and hours creating not so much a hairstyle, but a piece of art. It was, it was, it was intended to call attention to yourself and to the money you have and the luxury you have to be able to create such a hairstyle. And with hair and gold jewelry and clothing, you can, you can scream prostitute, you can scream I'm rich, you can scream all sorts of things. And Peter's warning against 
outward appearance that calls attention to you rather than to Jesus. You can almost hear Jim Croce, right? Bad, bad Leroy Brown. He liked to wear his diamond rings under everybody's nose. He walked around flaunting his wealth and flaunting his, his power and his pride and arrogance under the noses of everyone around him. And Peter's going, that's not what you're after. You're not looking for the attention for yourself. What the Bible wants from godly wives is dress and behavior and an attitude that calls attention to Jesus and not to yourself. Instead of finding your identity in your braided hair and gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, instead, find your identity in Christ and in living for Him and in becoming more and more like Him. In fact, Peter uses this language of gentle and lowly. But let your adorning, verse 4, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle and lowly spirit. You know, Jesus described Himself with two adjectives. They were not holy. They were not righteous. They were gentle and lowly. The only time Jesus, the only adjective Jesus uses to describe himself are these right here. Gentle and quiet, gentle and meek, gentle and lowly. Peter's urging for Christ likeness. That's the illustration. That's why he runs to Sarah, which we read just a few minutes ago. And you notice in verse 12 that she called, I mean, muttering under her breath with no one else around, calls Abraham, my Lord. No, I'm not advocating. No, I'm not advocating that ladies should call their husbands. Lord. That's not the point. That's not- the point is that even when she was alone and muttering under her breath, there was honor for Abraham. There was honor for her husband. In fact, you might even see it this way. Notice in verses 1 and 2, the focus is on a spirit that honors the husband privately. And in verses 3 to 5, it's a, the focus is on a spirit that honors the husband in public. That's the distinction. That's the change made there in this passage. You know, I'm convinced this is probably not exactly true. I guess if if the Spirit doesn't tell us, I can't really ascribe rationale to to order in the Bible if the Bible doesn't tell us the rationale for that. But I'm pretty well convinced that the reason wives are almost always addressed first and husbands second is so that just about the time he gets that smug look on his face, sitting back in his chair with his arms crossed, kind of getting just enough pompous, listen to all of the submit and all this stuff, the Bible turns its attention on him. And Peter says, Husbands, live with your wives 
and an understanding, wait, look, guys, I get it. Uh, women, I mean, I don't understand, right? I mean, you, you don't, it's hard. We say this all the time. I don't, I don't understand women. And just when you think you're starting to understand women, they zig when you thought they were going to zag and you don't understand women again. I've got good news for you. You don't have to understand women. You do have to understand a woman. Notice that he, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. You are a lifelong student of one woman. Which means the things she loves, the things that she hates, the, her favorite food, the things that, that make her upset, the things that make her nervous or scared, whether she cares about Valentine's Day or not. All of that is stuff for you to learn about one woman. And it's interesting, again, one of the objections to Christianity is that she is the weaker vessel. It uses language like she's the weaker vessel. You know, you're not allowed to say things like that in the world today. You're not allowed to. But, but it's objectifiably true. Not in every individual case. But generally speaking, how do you know? Well, go check the Olympic records. Go check the Olympic record for the 100 meters. The record for the men is faster than the record for the women. Go check powerlifting records in the Olympics. The record for the men is heavier than the record for women. Besides, who hands whom the pickle jar when you can't get the lid unscrewed? But see, here's the thing. In Peter's day, it wasn't just, and this is true both in Judaism and in Roman culture, it wasn't just that she's physically weaker. They thought she was also morally and mentally weaker. She was actually lesser. She was morally below him, mentally below him, and unable to open the pickle jar. But notice what Peter says. Weaker vessel, yes. A co-heir of the grace of life, also yes. Morally, mentally equal, even if she can't open the pickle jar. And who cares if she can't op open the pickle jar? In the grand scheme of things, who really cares? But it's this beautiful picture that this wife that you have is a co-heir of Christ with you. A co-heir of grace with you. She's morally and mentally equal to Him. So we have this picture of a committed covenant relationship between a husband and a wife that brings honor and glory to Christ. Let me make a couple of applications from uh, this passage. The first is this. Uh, just a, a reminder. Nowhere in Scripture does God allow anarchy. You saw it in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Where there was anarchy, He brought shape and filled what was formless and void. What's the biggest problem in the book of Judges? Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. God is a God of order. God is a God of 
structure. And we see that in the family, uh, the order of a wife's submission to her husband, and we set that in the larger context of everything else God does, bringing structure and order to it all. A second application. Let me just sort of reiterate. Um, against whatever the world may, whatever grenades the world may lob against uh, the church, submission isn't a function of value or worth. Uh, in fact, our shorter catechism, uh, we confess uh, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And yet Jesus says, it's my food to do the will of my Father. The Son submitting to the Father, even though they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Submission doesn't negate your value, it expresses it. A third application uh, husband's just a warning. Her submission isn't to an order barking, couch sitting, passive, absent husband, uh, but to a loving, honor showing representative of Christ. Uh, we are frequently quick to point out the submit passages, and we are far less quick to point out the live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor passages. Uh, may we more and more uh, honor our wives the way Christ honors and exalts the church. And lastly, let me make this application. Why do we call this, uh, the last couple of sermons have been the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life in, in, in society, in, in culture, whatever the terms were have been the last couple of weeks here in the home. Why do we call it the cross-shaped life. Let me suggest there are two reasons for this. One is because it takes the cross to produce this in us. We want, left to our own sinful selves, we want our own glory. We want our name in lights. We want to be exalted. We want people to sing our praises. We want the spotlight. We want to be the ones that everyone sings and talks about. It takes the cross of Christ to produce this in us. It takes His death on the cross to put to death our sinful nature. But the second reason is this, because living this life, we offer ourselves as a sacrifice for the good of others. May it be that we at Grace Covenant more and more are willing to put ourselves on the back burner for the honor of Christ, and for the good of those around us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, hearts to believe, and lives to live out this, your word. That we would take up our cross and follow you and give ourselves fully to You and for the good of others around us. We pray that we more and more would live the cross-shaped life, not just in our homes, but in Athens for, so that the name of Christ will be exalted. 
We pray all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen.